fascinating people, insightful stories, an hour of enlightenment. This is Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. In 1968, Andy Warhol said, in the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. It seems with the endless ways of getting attention these days, particularly in the internet age, with the oversaturation of all things media, print media, broadcast media, social media, every media you can think of, everyone is constantly sharing a joke or a funny video or a funny meme or something they just think is funny, but it's not really funny. Everyone is constantly obsessed with finding the humor in life. Is being funny in one way or another at the heart of how many people are really striving to achieve that 15 minutes of fame that we've got in the back of our mind that we want to achieve as our goal in life? Our guest says everything is getting funnier. Thank you so much for being here today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer, Ken Jennings. Hey, thanks for having me. He is the author of a new book, Planet Funny, How Comedy Took Over Our Culture. He, of course, is the Jeopardy champion that you know off the top of your head, a New York Times bestselling author. He was born in Seoul, South Korea, where his journey with Jeopardy began. It was way back in 2004. He auditioned for the show and went on to win 74 games, a winning streak worth $2.52 million. His other books, Brainiac, that's about his adventures with Jeopardy. That was a New York Times bestseller. Maphead, Because I Said So, New York Times bestseller. You see the trend here. (laughs) Well, Ken hosts his own podcast. It's called Omnibus. You can see everything up on his website, ken-jennings.com. That's right. Don't forget the hyphen or you get the guy in Florida who would not sell his URL to me. (laughs) There you go. Well, Ken, we have to talk a little bit about Jeopardy to start with because, you know, it's had a big impact on your life. So aside from the actual money that you won, is it the gift that just keeps on giving? It's now been nearly 15 years later. And what's been the most unexpected thing that has come your way as a result of having your 15 minutes of fame? Uh, Well, it was a great substitute for having a midlife crisis. I was a computer programmer in the early 2000s, and I wasn't all that great at my job and was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, because this is the new America, figuring out your life like in your 30s. And, uh, you know, instead of doing something stupid like going to law school or getting a trophy wife, I ended up going on a game show, and now I'm a freelance writer, and I love it. I'm Like, my daughter's homesick today, and I'm the one making her chicken soup and checking her uh, temperature, and... I am very grateful to Alex Trebek for saving me from the cubicle life and letting me write books. Well, that seems like a, a really nice thing to have as, as the real gift is time with your family. Absolutely. You can't put a price on that. And confidence as well. Like, I really can't overstate, like, kind of the shy retiring person I was as a kid. And, like, you know, I, it's, it's a weird thing. If you can arrange to find out you're, like, really good at a nationally televised thing, I would recommend it. Because I can, (laughs) like, I now think, sure, I like maps. Maybe I'll write a book book about maps. I'm a huge comedy nerd. Like, let's write a book about comedy. Like, that's the kind of unearned confidence that I never would have had in my 20s. And, of course, the, the, the confidence has given you the ability to then go and take this 15 minutes of fame and, and extend it and say to people, well, you know, you've seen me in this milieu, and now you can trust me to a certain degree to actually be smart and, uh, and write books. Yeah, it's a weird niche because we don't have a lot of like popular American celebrities whose thing is that they're. There's plenty of nerdy celebrities, but you know, being smart, be, you know, the illusion that you can answer every question—that's kind of a weird niche for fame. And I certainly did not think I would be milking it 
15 years later, but here we are. Here we are. Well, you write about an experience attending a sex ed class with your son, which sounds like uh, actually like a setup to a joke all by itself there. You know, a dad walks into a sex ed class with his kid. And I think you even write that in the book. It really does sound like a setup. So that class ended up being a lot more a lot more funny and a lot less serious than you thought it was going to be. Was that part of the impetus for writing Planet Funny? And uh, and talk about, you did mention you've been a comedy nerd, so expound on that a little bit more. Uh, you know, I grew up, I, you know, being one of these 80s kids who, uh, who found that as their means of rebellion. You know, for some of my friends, it was punk or heavy metal. But for me, it was staying up to watch Letterman or uh, Saturday Night Live or, you know, taping my friend's Eddie Murphy albums that would have killed my parents if they'd heard some of that stuff. Um, but it was just really part of creating an identity. And uh, ever since America has had youth culture, ever since the 50s and 60s, comedy has been one of the big um, means of doing that. And that was my childhood. And I was always kind of the class clown in school as well. You know, that's a, that's a defense mechanism that nerdy kids often can fall back on with some success. Uh, and... As a result, you know, a few years ago when Comedy Geek became one of the, you know, kind of, you know, Comedy Geekdom became kind of the lingua franca of our culture, um, I started noticing it everywhere from, you know, airline safety videos getting funny to just the avalanche of jokes on social media to, as you say, this sex ed class I took my fifth grade son to, expecting it to be the kind of serious, kind of grisly experience I had with the anatomical charts and, and whatnot in fifth grade, only to find the instructor was just this pleasant guy who did this amazing two-hour stand-up routine and just had the kids rolling in the aisle. And I thought, this is a new world. We did not have this in the 80s. And it was a tool. He used it as a way of really getting through the, the shell. Yeah, you know, I, I interviewed the guy afterwards, and he said that uh, you have to put the kids at their ease because everybody, kids and parents alike, come into that situation incredibly tense. And nobody's going to learn anything or change in that situation. And it's one of the many advantages of uh, humor. You know, a lot of evolutionary biologists will tell us that's probably why laughter evolved, kind of as a, as a social lubricant, a way to express to the group, hey, it looks like we're uh, fighting here, but we're just kids having fun or, <laughs> or whatever. Um, that's, that's one of the many things it does in our culture to this day. Well, your, your son is not a millennial, but you talk about a 2012 survey in Planet Funny that found 88% of millennials saying that their sense of humor is how they define themselves, which is probably going to trickle down to your kid. So what does that tell us about how the role of comedy has really changed rapidly across our current generations of, say, the baby boomers and the Gen Xers? Baby boomers loved comedy. You know, I grew up in the 80s when the baby boomers were putting the Dick Van Dyke show and Leave it to Beaver and all their beloved um, sitcoms back on Nick at Night as kind of an ironic nostalgia thing. But the difference today is I think how central comedy is not just to our um, leisure, but to our identity. You, you know, you, uh, they, ask kids, uh, they ask young people if they'd rather be locked in an elevator with a, their sports hero, their music hero, or their favorite comedian. And the comedian will win that survey. I guess he seems like a more fun guy to be stuck in an elevator with. And, uh, you know, it, I feel like in my generation, you would have expected all kids at some point to go through a phase where they're in a band. You know, uh, music's how they define themselves. And today, it seems like everybody you know is in an improv group or putting on a show or has a funny, a goofy, uh, funny uh, Instagram gimmick. Um, it's just how we define ourselves now by the jokes we tell and 
the idea that we, we we're, don't worry about me. I kind of have a light, ironic persona. Check it out. Well, you say that we're living in a golden age of comedy, and it's actually a really good time to be in the business of funny. And, and I have really fond memories. Uh, I'm a Gen Xer of watching, I think I'm a little older than you, Laugh In. And I used to listen to uh, Lily Tomlin comedy albums that I found in the, the discount bin at the store years later. And I would listen to them <laughs> over and over. And I even remember listening to sort of funny radio dramas on uh, NPR and then going buying the albums for the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and, again, listening to it over and over. So talk about how we went from that kind of silliness of that of that time to a much more serious but but funny show like the Daily Show or the Colbert Report and and how its impact on everyday people and how they use humor to actually diffuse difficult subjects. It's it's like these shows have been sort of a training ground for the public to be comics in our in our everyday lives to to just make us feel better to you know put one foot in front of the other. Yeah, that generation you described kind of was the, the, the first generation to discover comedy. You know, the, the kids with their Carlin albums and their Bob Newhart albums and their subscriptions to the Lampoon. Um, and again, it was just a, it was just a hobby. It, uh, it wasn't a way of seeing the world until it started to creep and saturate into every other aspect of our culture. In the 60s, for example, advertisers discovered that contrary to popular wisdom, funny ads actually did work. It was long thought that no ad should be funny because people would remember the, the ad and forget the product. Um, it, it wasn't until maybe the, you know, Nixon on Laugh-In or maybe Bill Clinton on Arsenio that um, presidential candidates realized this was now a weapon in their arsenal. So gradually, big institutions, powerful people and organizations realized that humor, this kind of common man's uh, you know, weapon against the establishment, could be co-opted and put to work for them. And we started to see it everywhere. And you mentioned The Daily Show, for example. It's a funny world we live in where, you know, a whole generation essentially is getting a lot of its news from comedy shows. If they didn't already see those news items as tweets or uh, Facebook memes during the day. Social media has kind of trained us all that our, our number one response to any topical event should be, a, should be a joke. You want to see people riffing about that. And it doesn't even matter what the event is. I've seen, you know incredible extended joke riffs about celebrity deaths on Twitter, which I think is a weird response to the news. Well, comedy certainly isn't all fun and games all the time and can have serious consequences because of the way it's taken. And uh, in one decade, it's taken one way, but then another decade, it's decade, and you know, it's offensive, it's dated. So can you write about the differences, say, between Charlie Chaplin's movie The Dictator that uh, takes on the Nazis and the more recent Seth Rogen, James Franco movie, which the interview uh, you know, took on Kim Jong-un, and there was very different response as, you know, sort of to those movies. And you write about that in Planet Funny. I think the responses, the different responses are pretty telling. You know, um, Hitler, according to some reports, was furious about Chaplin making him look goofy in The Great Dictator. But he didn't do anything except ban the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, if you'll recall, recently when, um, when Kim Jong-un was a figure of fun in this Seth Rogen comedy, The Interview, it led to a huge international incident with, uh, you know, a a nuclear power making threats against America because of a goofy stoner comedy, and, uh, you know, which ended in Sony canceling the movie and North Korea hacking Sony's servers. You know, a whole whole round of movie executives lost their jobs. I I think it's really a sign that everyone has become attuned to the power of jokes now. 
you know, we can't afford to, nobody can afford to shrug off a joke saying, oh, well, he's just kidding. She's just kidding. It'll be something else tomorrow because we understand how powerful they are. You know, countries someday are going to go to war over jokes. People sometimes lose their jobs over ill-advised social media jokes. We saw Roseanne this week. It's a, it's a culture where we, we correctly now realize that, you know, these are important utterances and you can't just shrug them off by saying, oh, they were only joking. Well, you write about Neil Postman's 1985 book, Amusing Ourselves to Death in Planet Funny, and he worried about the trivialities of mass media and they were going to be the death knell for American culture. Ken, talk about what he meant and why you think that he really underestimated the degree to which that thing that would amuse us to death would be amusement itself. Postman was a Canadian, I guess, uh, social philosopher who, who figured that the West had managed to escape a, uh, an Orwell-style dictatorship. But the looming dystopia he saw was more of a brave new world one, where we chose to kind of anesthetize ourselves with all kinds of stupid, cheap uh, media. Uh, and he's writing this in the age before the Internet. I think he wrote his book in the late 80s. And he lived long enough to see everything he was worried about come true, that we, uh, you know, we essentially spend a huge part of our day with our brains locked inside these little glowing rectangles in our pockets doing the dumbest things. And uh, that, maybe that's not good for our culture. And I think, uh, you know, when I, the first time I read that book, I didn't think of it through the lens of comedy. But more recently, as I've been seeing, you know, things that were once deadly serious, you know, airline safety videos, like I noticed, you know, that's, that's serious business, you know, knowing where the oxygen masks and the life vests are. Once I started to see those turn into, like, absurdist comedy sketches, I started to think, you know, maybe the, the biggest danger, postman-wise, is not just the fact that it's not just social media, and it's not just reality TV, and it's not these other kinds of um, junk media that postman would have been so worried about, that, that comedy is maybe the most ominous one of all, because... It feels so good. It's universal. We all love to laugh. You know, my book is a love letter to comedy, but I think the saturation of it, the fact that there's no part of our society that can now be earnest or sincere is uh, is not a good sign. And it's funny, when you think back to different, uh, even movies like uh, RoboCop, that at the time when they were first made, and he was certainly putting his tongue in cheek with some of the ads that he put in that movie and some of the things that he <laughs> talked about, and they have come to pass too, and it's like, ha, 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 then, and now it's sort of like, ha, 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 you know, it's a different <laughs> kind of funny. That's my wife's reaction whenever we see uh, Idiocracy, that's Mike Judge movie. Oh, yes. It's, you know, kind of suggests in the future we're all going to be so dumb we'll be watering our crops with Gatorade mm. and the president will be a pro wrestler. Yeah, that stuff's not so funny in 2018, actually. That, that movie has aged a little too well. Well, can you write in Planet Funny that Andy Kaufman, who, if you believe the theory, the conspiracy theories, he's still alive. Uh, essentially, <laughs> I hope he's listening right now. Yeah, there you go. He essentially invented a new kind of laughter in the 1970s. So talk about uh, why you think his sort of anti-comedy set pieces really struck a chord with people. Were we just ripe for that kind of act because of the times and what we were going through in the world with Vietnam and Nixon and all of that? Yeah, I think it's very easy to look at the comedy that came of that, out of that time period um, you know, Saturday Night Live is kind of meta comedy. Like, this is not a regular variety show. These are the not ready for primetime players. Or to see somebody like Steve Martin or, Ant- or uh, Andy Kaufman doing this kind of anti comedy where you're expecting jokes and they really 
don't tell jokes, Mm-mm. but it's still funny somehow. Um, I think that definitely comes out of that kind of cocktail of disillusionment with, you know, the, the young people had for the prevailing culture at the time. You know, somebody getting up on stage and telling Henny Youngman one-liners just does not cut it after, you know, you've, after you've seen Vietnam and Watergate and whatnot. And, uh, on and the, night, on becoming, the nightly news. Exactly. Like, you know, if you've got, if you've got uh, satire being one up by actual news out of, uh, out of Vietnam or wherever, um, and people were becoming savvier about comedy, too, I think. You know, as we started to see more and more of it, we understood its mechanics a lot better. And so you could tell when somebody was doing an ironic take on comedy or when somebody was essentially doing performance art but calling it comedy, you know. And that's become a real trend in comedy, um, something where the jokes are not even recognizable, a style of comedy where if you watched it with your parents or grandparents, they couldn't even tell they were looking at comedy. And yet that's kind of what Adult Swim and uh, a lot of modern comedy traffics in today, just this vibe of, this is so strange, why am I laughing? Well, our current president has used comedy in part to elevate himself to the highest level office in the country, whether purposely or not. And depending on, again, the conspiracy theory you listen to, he's on some sort of grand performance art piece himself. So talk about how you think <laughs> President Trump used and tries to continue to use his brand of quote unquote funny to achieve his goals. This is a part of the book people have pushed back on because I really do strongly believe that Trump did campaign and win kind of as a comedian. And people will tell me, are you saying he's funny? That's not funny. Look at this. This is He's not, a, he's not a skilled comedian, and they're right. I don't find him particularly funny either. But that kind of swaggering, buffoonish thing he did throughout the campaign and even today, I think was very convincing for a lot of people. You know, it, it, I think it helped persuade a certain kind of voter that, hey, this guy's a billionaire landlord from Queens, but, but look at him up there goofing around like it's WrestleMania. He's one of us. Uh, and people would come out of those rallies saying, you know, uh, oh, you know, as if they had seen some kind of rage comedian, they would say things like, oh, he, he's not afraid to tell it like it really is. You know, this is finally a, a, a guy who goes there, you know, which is what you might say after seeing some angry shock comedian on Bill Maher. Uh, and so I think a lot of people kind of felt like uh, it, it defused him a little, it defanged him. Sure, he's saying these wacky, over-the-top things about building a wall and deporting people and locking up his political opponents and journalists. But that's just the kind of over-the-top crazy thing a comedian does, you know? And I think you had people thinking that, therefore, he was more harmless than he was. And, uh, hey, I was a Bernie guy, but I'm going to vote ironically for Donald Trump, of all people. Ken, I can't let you go without doing the one thing that everyone is expecting me to ask of you, and that is, uh, can you tell us a joke? (laughs) Uh, I have found that um, people don't tend to remember jokes if they can actually think of jokes. The joke, the joke I always tell if somebody says, tell me a joke, is uh, it's just a kid's riddle that I think one of my kids told me. Mm-hmm. Why did the monkey fall out of the tree? Why did he fall out of the tree? Oh, because he was dead. <laughs> See, it's, it's anti-comedy. But that, yes. that, 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 play, that plays in fourth grade now, apparently. Apparently. that's uh, Well, you know, I remember the dead baby jokes when I was a kid. So, uh, right. so there you go. Ken Jennings is the Jeopardy champion you know off the top of your head. He's a New York Times bestselling author. His newest book, Planet Funny, How Comedy Took Over Our Culture, is out right now. Check out his website, ken-jennings.com. Thank you so much for being here today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. Thanks, Charlie. It was a pleasure.